0: Find out more at ReadingTheBibleLands.com This episode of Live the Bible is brought to you by Walking the Bible Lands. If you haven't been to Israel yet or you'd like to relive your tour, these on-site videos are the next best thing to being there. Check it out at WalkingTheBibleLands.com Hello and welcome to Live the Bible. My name is Wayne Stiles, and this is the podcast that helps you connect the Bible right to your daily life. In this episode, I'm going to answer some questions I was recently asked, questions about the Bible and how to live the Bible. And that's really what it's all about, isn't it? The Bible tells us everything we need to know, but not necessarily everything we want to know. For example, why can't we have less about genealogies and more about raising teenagers? Well, today, I'm going to do my best to share the Bible's insight into some of those types of questions. I'll be back in a bit, but for now, let's get right into this week's podcast. Now, questions are great because the Bible gives us some good answers to to good questions, and Sometimes, though, we are still left closing the book, scratching our heads, not because God is confusing, but because uh, I think it was uh, Dr. Hannah who uh, said, at least I heard it from him, he said, God has revealed himself to us truly, but he has not revealed himself completely. And that is often our challenge. I remember one time I was uh, on a tour, leading a tour to Israel, I was sitting down at dinner one time and one of the guys on our tour, it was early in the tour, so before I sort of had everybody everybody figured out. And um anyway, this guy sat down and he said, uh, tell me about the the God of the old testament. You know, why was he why was he so angry? Why why is he why did he, you know, kill all those people and so different from the God of the New Testament. And so anyway, we talked about that and then he just kept firing off these questions. And they were, this, they were of the nature of smoke screens, not really wanting to learn or to, to be challenged or to grow. It was more of, yeah, well, what about this? You know, that kind of question. And uh, so the questions that you submitted were actually great. And I didn't really sense any, you know, smoke screens in the bunch. But uh, if there are, then we'll, try to, we'll do our best to try to work our way through them. I, I, and I've got to be honest with you, you. know, As Dennis was saying, there, there is a certain amount of uh, fear and trepidation that goes with sort of open-ended questions because <clears throat> the Bible doesn't tell us everything. It tells us a lot. It tells us everything we need to know. doesn't tell us everything we want to know. That's our challenge. I mean, we'd love to know a little less about genealogies and more about, like, how to raise teenagers. It's like, what well, really seems lopsided to me, you know. We would love to know. Just give us a chapter, just one chapter, God, on teenagers, and uh, maybe one less chapter on who begat who. But that's not the way it works. So uh, I'm just and really got no particular order. If there was some questions that sort of grouped together, I tried to group them together. We're going to try to get through them all. I didn't count them, but I've got like five pages here. So, we'll we'll see what what can happen. Maybe we'll make a part 2 out of it here in a couple of weeks. And by the way, I'm I think maybe did you mention that, that I was leaving? I I thought I heard that you said that, but I'm leaving actually today after class to go to the airport uh for a tour to Greece and the steps of Paul. So, I won't be able to hang around after class if there's like any follow-up questions, but if while we're talking, I mean, literally, right in the middle of everything, don't stand up and give testimony. But if you, if you don't mind just raising your hand and let me let me point you out, and if there's, like we're going through and there's a, a, an issue of clarification or not just giving an opinion or whatever, but seriously, if there's something that isn't clear or that needs clarification or further conversation, just raise your hand. And that doesn't mean that you asked the question. It just means you've, you'd like clarification on something. I'm not going to mention who asked the question because that doesn't matter. Uh, I know who asked the question, but it doesn't matter for, for everyone else to know. All right. Well, how's that for all the disclaimers I can throw in? <laughs> we'll throw in a few more. Like uh, some, And if it's an opinion, I'll tell you it's an opinion. We're going to need a bigger box. We'll need a bigger box, yes. Yes. All right. So, here's question number 1 and again in no particular order. Why does Ecclesiastes seem to be such a downer? <laughs> That's a great question. You know, when you read Ecclesiastes, it's uh probably Solomon who wrote it because of all the testimonial uh things that are mentioned in it. <clears throat> and we actually did a message on Ecclesiastes Uh, A year or two ago, when we were going through, remember we did a single message from each book of the Bible, and Ecclesiastes was in there. And the whole, so you might go back and listen to that because it really does uh, give a bigger, fuller answer. But the the reason Ecclesiastes is such a downer is because Solomon's theme in that book is that life is vanity, or life under the sun, as he calls it, meaning. Uh, here on this planet, is meaningless, it is vanity in and of itself. And then in the very last chapter, there's a few hints prior to that, but the very last chapter, he says why it is because life apart from God has no purpose, that God has given us purpose, and that apart from God there is no purpose. So it's such a downer because without God in life, it is a downer. That's, That's the essence of it. That's his point. All right, next, any, again, just lift your hand if I forget to ask for any clarification or whatever on the next. Next question, given that we believe the entire Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit, why do you think God included all those boring genealogy details, (laughs) especially in the Old Testament? What is its importance for us? You know, we all think this, especially when we are in our Bible reading program, when we get to 1 Chronicles, I mean, the first nine chapters of 1 Chronicles, just like begat this and begat that. It is, can we say it's boring? It is boring. From our perspective, it seems so dull and irrelevant. Uh, Paul says all scripture is profitable, but some is more profitable than others, and that's Okay. And God wrote the Bible not just for us in the marathon class. God wrote the Bible for all believers of history, and in many sense, for all people of history. Billions and billions of people, different needs, different seasons, different eras, different purposes. And so the genealogies are maybe not necessarily that relevant directly to us, though in the genealogies we can definitely see that God's faithful to his promises because the whole purpose of them being there is to show that God remembers the tribes. God remembers his promises to Abraham. And as they are they're passed down, we get to see God's faithfulness in it. So I'll make that short because its importance for us is about that long as well. Uh, what about the various types of offerings in Leviticus? Burn offering, grain offering, fellowship offering, et cetera, et cetera, And are there parallels for us today? Um, Again, there are parts that are more relevant than others. If you were a Hebrew living in the 15th century B.C., this would be very relevant for you. In fact, you'd need to be very clear on what all these sacrifices were because it mattered to your spiritual life and your walk with God. But for us, the Apostle Paul refers to all these things. He says these are all a shadow. The substance belongs to Christ. So in some sense, all these offerings do point to Jesus and if this is something that you're really interested in finding out a little bit more about, I've actually written a, uh, a single-page handout on all of these offerings. I know, it's like really dull. Why in the world did I do that? But I studied Leviticus uh, years back, and I've actually thought about doing a verse-by-verse a, a verse on Leviticus for our class because there is so much direct connection uh, to us, at least by principle, and but the burnt offerings, grain offerings, peace offerings, um, we really could take a, a a lot of time on each one of these. But instead of doing that, I'm going to sort of, what do you call it? Lateral, give a give a lateral pass to Harry. No, lateral pass to this handout. And you can find it if you go to my blog at WayneStyles.com and there's a little search field, just type in offerings. And Leviticus and you'll find it and you can be able to download it. But it'll give you a whole lot more information. But essentially every one of these has a connection to Christ. Every one of these offerings has a connection to Jesus Christ. The burnt offering is was the basic offering that had to be done basically for you to have uh, sins forgiven. Uh, peace offering is a wonderful connection to just that you had peace with God, it was an expression that you were in fellowship with God. It sort of is like a connection to us and, and communion. And uh, anyway, the rest of these offerings do have a connection as well to Christ. So I'm going to lateral that, but there is good answer, and but it'll require you doing taking the next step with it. All right, uh, there's that, and okay. So Genesis four, let's turn there together to Genesis four. Genesis chapter 4. And here's the question on your way there. Cain says to God that he will be a wanderer and, a, and subject to be slayed by anyone who finds him. Who is he referring to as anyone? True, he has many brothers and sisters that are born to Adam after this incident, but they are behind him in age. Why does he think there are others out there? Maybe Adam and Eve are not the only ones God created. Well, one good thing about Scripture is that when it's clear, it's clear. They, Adam and Eve, were the only ones created at creation. There were no others created. And we know that for a couple of good reasons. Romans chapter 5 tells us that we were all in Adam, that there is a common spiritual connection to uh, Adam and Eve. And we're also told that there is a common physical connection to Adam and Eve, Paul's sermon on mars hill in athens he says that we all descended from one man so there was nobody else so to your question then who is cain referring to he uh, remember people lived like 900 years back then so you got plenty of time to uh, you know to have a lot of other people around so genesis 4:14 4, cain said uh, to the Lord behold you've driven me this day from the face of the ground, from your face i 'll be hidden i 'll be a vagrant and wanderer and whoever finds me will kill me. so the whoever that he 's referring to there uh, has to be has to be those who would come after him, reproduced from his own family, and then ultimately mankind. so uh, just a couple of chapters over is another question this one not so easy Genesis six. Look at Genesis chapter 6. The question is, uh, please explain Genesis 6, 1 through 8. That's that's pretty simple, isn't it? So we won't go through all eight verses, but just look. You probably know this incident. Verse 1 says, It came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever. He is flesh. Nevertheless, his days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and bore children to them. These were the mighty men of old, men of renown, and then etc., cetera, et cetera. So, you know, the, the obvious question here, if you're sort of uh, familiar with this issue is that the phrase sons of God in the Old Testament always refers to angels or angelic beings. And so how in the world do sons of God cohabit with women or the daughters of men, and did they produce this sort of weird race, the Nephilim? Well, some there is some people that take that view. The, the, of course, the challenge with that view, of course, is that uh, Jesus said that angels— We will be like angels when we're in glory. Not that we'll be angels, but we'll be like angels in that there will be no marriage. And so this could not be angels in the sense certainly of holy angels and even of demons. Because demons, when you think about it throughout the scripture, you never see demons in a body unless they are possessing the body. But holy angels, on the other hand, you see them appearing as people. But you never see that with regard to demons. Demons always have to have a host, as it were, always have to have someone to possess. And that, I think, uh, is what this passage is saying. Some also say that the sons of God in this one instance represents the godly line of Seth that basically represented, uh, that cohabited with women. But it's sort of strange that they would be referred to like that. Sons of God usually refers to angels. So I take it that this is a reference to uh, demons that possessed these individuals, that, um, and of course they were they were sinful in doing so. No hands. Yes. All right. Yes, Joseph. Yes, please. Demonic being as a man can somehow <clears throat> impregnate a female. Thank you for answer, asking that clarification question. That is not what we're saying. Okay, thank you. We are not saying that a demon can somehow get a body in order to do that. I am saying that a demon can possess a man. Oh. And that the man does what men do. Thank you for clarifying that. Yes. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> Now, I wouldn't die for that answer, but to me, that, that is the answer that makes the most sense, that violates the least amount of other scriptures. We always interpret scripture with scripture, not with opinion. So when I say I take it, I don't mean that's just my opinion. I mean, I'm taking all of the other scriptures and, and, uh, and taking it that way. So you can disagree. That's fine. This is not a, uh, a black and white issue. It's a great question. It's a common question. It's not an easy answer. All right, page one done. So now let's flip to the other side of the Bible, Romans chapter 10. Look at Romans chapter 10. The very, very good question on a passage we know well, Romans chapter 10, verse 9. The question is essentially, and I'm rewording the question because it, I can make it shorter. How do we square or how do we uh, harmonize Romans 10, verse 9 with verses that say all we have to do is believe? And there are a number of verses, of course, that say that. But Romans ten, nine, seems to add something else to it. Uh, look at Romans 10, verse 9. Paul writes, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the mouth a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth, with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. The thought there behind the question is do we have to confess as well as believe in order to be saved? Or are we just do we just have to believe? Because Paul says right here, you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Um, so look at just above this, notice Paul is is explaining or going right after verse eight, where he quotes from Deuteronomy. And Deuteronomy he quotes, he says, The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith, which we are preaching. So Paul is defining the word singular of faith in your mouth and in your heart. In other words, it's the same thing. It's the same thing. And if we say that maybe this is two different actions and not just one action, then let's look down at verse 13 and add a third. Because verse 13 says, "...whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved." Oh, so, And now we've got to add that to it as well. No, we don't. It's all the same thing. To confess with your mouth and to believe in your heart is the same action. Think about when the rest of the Bible also talks about being baptized. If you know, uh, Peter says if you are baptized and believe, so do you have to be baptized to be saved too? No. Each of these contexts, faith is always the hinge, but the expression of that faith sometimes comes out in different ways, sometimes baptism, sometimes confessing with your mouth, sometimes calling on the name of the Lord. But the ultimate bottom line, as Paul said there in verse 8, the word of faith. Which we are preaching. So there is no two different action. Same as with repentance, by the way. Repent and believe. Repent and believe is the same thing. It's not two different things, it's not two different steps in uh, placing your faith in Jesus. Okay, any follow up on that? Yes, sir. say that once again into the mic you're saying faith came from god
1: yeah you know, faith is uh from god and uh it's uh god who will that will be saved isn't that uh true
0: yes you're you are you've backed up one chapter now to romans nine where god has elected us and both are true both are true it's This is one of those God has revealed himself truly but not fully type things and that it is very difficult for us to harmonize what seems to be a contradiction. So your point is an excellent point that God has indeed uh, elected us or predestined us for faith. But we are still, that's Romans 9, and that leaves a scratch in our heads. But Romans 10 comes right after it, thankfully, which we can understand. Our responsibility is to believe. So, that both are true, both are true. Does that address what you were asking? Or okay, wonderful. Thank you for that clarification. All right. So let's press on. Uh, next question. Oh, I love this question. Once I have believed, it's it's long, but the answer is not quite as long. Once I have believed in Jesus Christ as the only Son of God, and trust Him for eternal life knowing that he paid my sin debt and by dying on the cross, I am told in the Bible that the Holy Spirit indwells me. But is it essential to pray daily for God to fill me with his Spirit? I believe it is important to confess my sin daily and to repent of my sins. However, if I fail to do this each day, I don't lose his salvation. Along the same vein, if I fail to ask God to fill me with his Spirit, I don't believe that the Holy Spirit ceases to indwell me. Am I correct in this or incorrect according to the Bible? I love that. According to the Bible. The Bible is very clear on this, and it's an excellent question and a common confusion about being indwelt by the Spirit and being filled with the Spirit. These are two separate things for us as a Christian. When we think about the Old Testament, for example, you notice that the the filling or the empowerment of the Spirit came and went, like with Saul. The, the Spirit of God left Saul, and we see the Spirit of God came powerfully upon David. In Psalm 51, you remember David prays, Take not your Holy Spirit from me. That was a real possibility. And it didn't mean that David would lose salvation. It was an anointing. It was a power for to be used by God in a particular way. We can equate that to the New Testament of. of being filled with the Spirit. So let's look at both of these actually in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, Paul refers to these same two things that you just asked about. You do not have to pray every day in order to be certainly indwelt, but uh, even to be filled with the Spirit. We'll see. How does it happen? Ephesians chapter 1, look at verse 13. Ephesians 1.13, Paul writes, In him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. So in those two verses the Apostle is telling us about the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit. That is, when we believe, the moment we believe in Jesus Christ, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, permanently indwelt by the Holy Spirit. He will never leave us. And the the idea that we are sealed by him, it's an interesting word. In fact, i we were talking about Dr. Toussaint, the blessing of his ministry here among us. I can remember him teaching from this very... Uh, uh, lectern on this word it's the word sfragizo and he said it in such a way he goes sfragizo i can still see his face contorting when he did it and he said it was an onomatopoeia of a seal when you squeeze a, a seal you had the impression of a seal and the holy spirit is like that it is god's ownership squeezed onto us or impressed upon us and it is permanent the spirit will never leave us Ever leave us, no matter what we do. This is also reinforced in Paul's letters to the Corinthians, where he says that don't you know that God's Spirit indwells you, and that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit? And he was talking to the Corinthians, the sinful carnal church, was indwelt by the Spirit of God. So there is this indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit. He will never leave you. You don't even have to pray for it. It's done. It is. It is as good as done. So, but what about filling? Turn a few chapters over to chapter five and look at what Paul writes in Ephesians five. This is very different. He says um, in verse eighteen, Ephesians five eighteen Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. So, drunk with wine. Uh, interesting, we call wine or alcohol spirits, at least in our, our, our day. And it's the idea of being what controls you. Alcohol can definitely control, control you if you're drunk with it. And he's using that as a, as a contrast to the Holy Spirit. Allow the Holy Spirit to be the controller of your life. And notice, be filled. It is a command. This is something we are to obey. You are to be filled. I am to be filled with the Holy Spirit. How do we do that? Well, look at the grammar of the verses that follow. Be filled is the the main command in it. And then after that, you've got, to you grammar lovers, participles that tell us how we are to obey that, how we are to be filled. Verse 19, speaking, singing, singing, making melody. Verse 20, giving thanks. Verse 21, being subject. So you are to be filled by speaking, singing, giving thanks, being subject. In other words, by obeying. Obedience. When Jesus said in John 15 to abide in him, he, it, it's, a, it's a very similar thing where he talks about to remain in me is to remain in fellowship with him. If we obey the Lord and he gives some examples, speaking to one another, singing, giving thanks, being subject, then we are filled with the Spirit. We are empowered by God to do that which we could not do otherwise. It's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting walk with the Spirit of God that when we obey him, he empowers us To do what we could not do otherwise. Now, obviously, that comes and goes because we don't always obey. And so we aren't to pray to be filled with the Spirit. We are commanded to be filled with the Spirit, and we know that that happens when we obey Him. I remember, uh, again, Dr. Toussaint telling us assume you are in fellowship with God unless you know you're not. It's a great bit of advice. It's a great bit of advice. I have one question. Uh, somebody,
1: if, somebody
0: if, uh, on. if, if someone accepts Christ and then later rejects Christ, what happens? Yeah. Uh, the, the question, if someone accepts Christ and then later rejects Christ, what happens? I mean— I guess the question is, did they really accept? And if they did really accept, tell me what sin Jesus didn't die for. They're still saved, they're just really confused. And that can happen. Remember, Jesus said, uh, Jesus said, the, uh, how do you phrase it? the the one who believes in the one who causes one who believes in me to stumble it's better that a millstone be put around his neck the culpability in that instance could possibly be for the one who led that person astray not the person who was led astray but that is a difficult, really difficult thing and we are never given the gavel to determine you never really were a christian A lot of us in Christendom try to make that statement, and we aren't given the freedom to do that. Okay. So, but as far as indwelling, indwelling of the Spirit, it's a permanent thing. The Holy Spirit's never going to leave us. But being filled with the Spirit, that is a command we we, we do. We obey that by obeying God on a daily basis. And it's wonderful when that happens because you can, you can tell. There are times that I can tell that I am being enabled by God to do what I couldn't do otherwise if I hadn't had his power within me. Hey everyone, Wayne here. We have all heard about the missionary journeys of the great Apostle Paul. But there's nothing like seeing these biblical places for yourself. Corinth. Philippi. Thessalonica, and so many more places. How would you like to see all of these places for real? Well, you can. Registrations are well underway for my upcoming tour to Greece and Turkey in the footsteps of the Apostle Paul. There's even an optional extension to the great cities of Rome and Pompeii. There's still room for you to experience these places that will change the way you read the New Testament, I'm certain check out the video and complete itinerary at waynestyles.com slash tours. And now, back to the podcast. All right, so next question. I have a question, Is another easy one, about Hebrews 6. Ugh, let's turn to Hebrews 6. This is, this is uh, tough, and what makes it tough is trying to be brief about it. Uh, Hebrews 6, verses 4 through 6, Ray Steadman uses the illustration of one who is stillborn. Interesting. John MacArthur, this refers to one who are intellectually convinced about Christ but have not really received Christ. In both cases, this cannot be referring to a believer. Do you agree? Well, once again, I'm, I'm going to mention a, a message that can take you deeper and further. If you go onto our Marathon website, uh, our marathon, it's marathonfellowship.org, marathonfellowship.org. There's a search field there, and if you'll search for the phrase, are you sure you're secure? Are you sure you're secure? We did a, uh, a whole message on Hebrews 6 as well as Hebrews 10 when we were going through the one message from each book of the Bible, and we get into much more detail of it there. So, if this is a question that really interests you, please listen to that, it'll give you much more than I'm about to uh, do right now. But let's just talk through this for a moment. Um, let me just say I have a lot of respect for Stedman and MacArthur, obviously all of us do, but I do not see that, this, that the context warrants this being an uh, unbeliever. And the reason is from the context, not from definitely just from my opinion. And I say that very, very uh, humbly because I have a tremendous amount of respect for Stedman and MacArthur both. But there are also those uh, in my camp, so I'm not standing by myself in this. Why would I say that this is a believer? Remember, Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, is written to Hebrews, it's written to Jewish Christians. And the challenge that they were facing during that time was leaving Christianity and going back into Judaism. You see it all throughout the book of Acts was the major temptation of Jews who had become Christians being sucked back into Judaism because the Judaizers, Paul was constantly locking horns with them as they were trying to pull them back into the law and to pull them back into uh, being just a Jew and not facing that Christ has freed us from all that. And the, these Hebrews, these Jews were facing a major temptation to do that. And so the book of Hebrews, in part, is written to them to challenge them to move forward. Because Christ is better. He's better than Moses. He's better than angels. He's better than the New Covenant. He's better than the Old Covenant. Everything about Hebrews is saying, go forward with God's plan. Don't go backward to the old plan. Don't go back to junior high school. Press on to high school. This is God's will for you. And Specifically, we see that here in this context. If we, we talked about Hebrews 6, but look back at one verse, the last verse of chapter 5. He says, "...solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil." Notice because of practice, there is application. Next verse, chapter 6, "...therefore, leaving the elementary teachings about the Christ, Let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrections of the the dead and eternal punishment. And this we will do if God permits. Notice he's including himself. So he's talking about Christians. Now, here is the the rub, verse 4. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened, and have tasted the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. So this sort of goes back to your question. Is this an individual who has placed their faith in Christ and then has, has punted? Christ, and were they actually saved? Some would say, no, then they weren't actually Christians. They just had an intellectual knowledge about Christ, but they never really believed. The challenge with that, notice in verse 4, at least in the New American Standard and in the Greek original, is the word for. He is explaining what he just said in verse 3. This we will do if God permits. For, now he's given an example. In the case of those who have once been enlightened. And the wording here of of tasted the heavenly gift, partakers of the Holy Spirit. Notice, partakers of the Holy Spirit. Tasted the good word of God, the power is to come. This is language of a believer. This is not language of one who just has an intellectual learning of God. But then notice also it says, if they've fallen away, what does that mean? it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucified themselves son of god the falling away is again in the context going back to judaism it's not that you don't believe in jesus christ it's it's slipping back into judaism as opposed to pressing on in christ and when he says it's impossible to renew them again to repentance it doesn't mean salvation it doesn't mean conversion it means commitment because if it's saying that you you can go back and lose your salvation, it also says it's impossible to renew you to salvation, which is completely unbiblical. That someone, if they lose their salvation, now they've lost it forever and can't ever get it back. So it, it, it really seems a stretch to me to be pointing to uh, an unbeliever. It seems much more likely that we're talking about A Jew, in the context of the book of Hebrews, challenged to go back into Judaism. And this person is saying, no, this author is saying, no, press on, grow deeper. And then notice verse 7, he gives another example, beginning with the word for. This is an illustration. Ground that drinks the rain, which often falls on it, and brings forth vegetation, useful to those for whose sake it is tilled, receives a blessing from God. So the illustration is, when ground gets rain, it brings forth vegetation that is useful. Key, key word there, useful. Verse 8 is the contrast. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless. And close to being cursed, it ends up being burned. James chapter 2, he uses a similar idea there, where he talks about a person who hears the word but doesn't apply the word. It's worthless. Why? Why? Why would you hear the word if you're not going to apply it? And so this author is making the very same point. You don't just hear about Christ and then go back to Judaism. You hear about Christ and you press on. So very short, very brief, but the message that I mentioned to you goes a little deeper into it. So any quick follow-up to that? Lisa. Lisa.
1: In 1 John, he said that if they fall away, there's no way... I just looked it up. No, I won't be able to find it. He says once they've gone from us, they never were one of us to begin with in 1 John chapter 2, I
0: think. Right, 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 right.
1: So those are not believers. I know it's not the same author. Right. So is that where some of the confusion comes in when you read... For sometimes we read Hebrews that these people fell away... It could,
0: it could be yeah that there were some i mean there were some paul paul even talks about some who sneak in you know uh, right. uh, and like in in the church of corinth they would sneak into their uh i think he called them their love feasts basically their fellowships and they were uh, sneaking trying to pull them back suck them back into judaism so it's the same idea
1: and i always took what we just went through is it's once you're saved it's impossible for me to lose my salvation and if if i'm walking away from christ there is nothing else that can save me if i truly am rejecting that's what i always it's impossible that writer says to come to repentance again because there is no other repent there's no no other salvation except in jesus christ
0: yes except this author i think this author's talking about Repentance not to salvation but repentance to commitment,
1: okay.
0: A a, a commitment of growing on in in maturity in Christ.
1: So that goes back to like the first John 1 9. If you can, no, I think
0: it goes back to what you were saying just a second ago about uh, uh, if if you believe but then you walk away from what you believe, there is this sense of that you're not going to come back to that commitment because you're so deceived and darkened at that point, even as a believer that you're just going to kind of go on in the darkness until God graciously takes you home. And he may do it early, you know, he may he may do it early. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's look at the next one here. Interesting question. How can a narcissist, specifically a covert narcissist, also be a true Christian? And how would God want us to interact with them? Until recently, and as what most people think, I thought of a narcissist as merely someone who loved themselves more than anything or anyone else, but in fact, there are several different subcategories of narcissism, covert being only one. Well, psychology today defines, I didn't know what a covert narcissist was worth, so do we have to have more than one? Can't we just have one? No, it turns out we got a lot of them. And here's what a covert narcissist is. The covert narcissist fails to develop emotional empathy, self-awareness, or a stable sense of identity and self-esteem in childhood. Covert narcissists avoid the spotlight, prefer passive-aggressive means of controlling others due to their fear, being exposed and humiliated. Tactics of a covert narcissist might include belittling, triangulation, and avoiding direct responsibility. Sounds like the church to me, doesn't it? Yeah, I I think one of the challenges here is very often personal experience really pushes hard against simple answers. Um, Honestly, I don't even remember who asked this question, so I'm not going to look at anyone in particular. But, (laughs) But having to deal with someone who is of this nature, especially if it's family, makes it really, really tough. We could ask a question another way. Someone that who doesn't display the fruit of the Spirit, are they saved? And then maybe we could ask another question, how much fruit do I have to see before I'm convinced they're saved? See, now it kind of goes back once again to God's not called us to be fruit inspectors. This covert narcissist Has he or she accepted Christ? That's the bottom line. Now, they have a different flavor of sin than the rest of us, maybe. But that doesn't mean that he's not a believer. So, but to your more practical question, how in the world do we deal with them? That's the harder, harder answer. That's the very difficult answer. Um, And I think your friend can be the book of Proverbs for this. Proverbs gives us a lot of wonderful wisdom with dealing with, and I don't mean this insultingly, but fools, scoffers, people who are not interested in hearing the truth but only interested in hearing themselves. Um, There's... Some great wisdom in the book of Proverbs, and a wonderful little single volume on Proverbs was written by the wonderful British scholar Derek Kidner. Derek Kidner, K I D N E R. And his commentary is a little short commentary published by InterVarsity Press. So if that's not in your library, that'd be a good one to add. Derek Kidner, Proverbs by InterVarsity Press. And he has several subject studies. Like, he'll take, like, the sluggard or um, uh, the fool is the one that I'm recommending. He's got a whole subject study where he takes all the proverbs on the fool, and he sort of breaks it down. Here's what the fool looks like. Here's what the scoffer looks like. And there are some very practical—you could go, like, right into the issue of dealing with some practical ways of dealing with a narcissist or any of these other individuals. For example, Proverbs twenty-six verses four and five is that one the, the wonderful two little proverbs right beside each other that says, "Don't answer a fool according to his folly, lest uh, uh, lest he be wise in his own eyes," or something like that. And then the next one says, "Answer a fool according to his folly." It's like, well, which which is it? The answer is yes, it's both, but it depends on the situation. You need wisdom for a particular situation. Proverbs twenty two twenty five also says not to continue to hang around an angry person because they will suck you into that mindset, and he says you'll just have to do it again. If you rescue them, you just have to do it again about enabling. Uh, also, if this is a family member and this is this individual is not somebody that you can just say see at Christmas, then. Uh, honestly I mean yes you definitely pray but I'm sort of assuming that's already happening but yes you definitely pray for them but uh, go I'd see a licensed Christian counselor or a psychologist. psychologist give me some help on how to, how to manage this because I can't walk away from it but I also can't continue to deal with it on my own and if you're not sure where to find one uh, you can go to Dallas Seminary Dallas Seminary has got a website full of Christian counselors who are grads in our area. Or you could ask our church. They'd be happy to to uh, point you in the right direction. Alright, next question. Which church described in Revelation does today's conservative Christian church in America look like? Great question. Let's look at Revelation chapter 2. Which church in Revelation? Now, I'm not sure if Maybe you're asking, which church are we most like? Uh, Some people, and the reason I'm wondering is because some people also say uh, that each of these churches represents an era in church history. Like, you know, this particular church is the medieval church. This particular church represents this. And the churches in their order represent the churches of the age, with uh, the final church, Laodicea, representing our age. But I, maybe if you meant that, then, of course, Laodicea would, would be our age. So that's probably not what you're asking. You're probably asking, which one do we most look like? Well, when you read through these churches, they all kind of look like where we are. And it is sort of uh, disheartening because I, I read back through them a little bit to just sort of see you know, what what the elements of each of these are. I mean, do you want to say that, you know— We're facing, like, the persecution of Smyrna or the immorality of Pergamum and Thyatira or the self-sufficiency of Laodicea. All of those are elements of what we struggle with. But if we had to pick just one, or if I had to pick just one, since that's what you're asking, I would probably pick Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who holds, walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance that you cannot tolerate evil men, and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have left your first love. When I look at evangelicalism today, and our circles are in that camp. We are committed to doctrine. We are committed to deeds. But our devotion to the Lord, our first love for the Lord, can sometimes take a back seat. And that is is definitely a warning that we need to see here from the Church of Ephesus. Okay, next question. We will not be given to marriage in heaven. Will sexual distinction also be a thing of history? Will, will we be able to eat drink and we will be able to eat and drink in heaven, but won't have to do so to sustain ourselves. Does this imply that we'll be heavenly plumbing in our mansions? And I won't and I won't read the last part. <laughs> Because you get the idea. This is one of those I can just gladly go, who knows? I mean, who knows? We can make a couple of observations, though. Jesus was raised in the same body he died in. The same physical body that Jesus died in was raised. So, do we know if anything else changed in that resurrection? We don't. We aren't told at all. We do see Jesus eating, but we don't see Jesus going to the latrine. But, you know, we never did. So, but we know he did. So um, it's a great question. One, one thing is I thought about this actually for a couple of days just so what I didn't just blow, blow the question away. Uh, Re- Revelation 22, verse 2 had an interesting, I guess we're in Revelation. If you want to flip to 22, the very end, and look at verse 2. There's a verse here that could suggest something. 22.2 speaks of the tree of life, which bears 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Now, this is the eternal state. What healing is going on? I think this is probably a, a, a bad translation. I'm not sure. Anybody else have anything other than Healing? For that, okay, well, the the original word there uh, could be a word that translates more uh, uh, the sustaining. We get our word therapeutic from this Greek word, and it could it has more the idea that the tree of life and its fruit, its leaves, will somehow contribute to our physical well being. Implication that God is providing for our physical needs even in the eternal state through the tree of life. That is about as close as I can think the scripture gets to answering the questions of our physical needs in the eternal state. So, with that, we'll move on to the next one. There's a question about how God guides us on a daily basis. Did I take two pages off. I really hope not. Oh, I did. Rats. Okay. So we got we got more. We may have to have a part two. So this is a question about how God guides us on a daily basis. Explain the difference between following God's guidance through the Bible in concert with the promptings of the Holy Spirit. Is it biblical to think that God speaks to me with a small voice in my mind apart from the Bible if the message God is telling me is not against Scripture? I hear people saying, the Lord told me to do this and that. Is it biblical? Well, you can go up to Christian Bookstore and find both answers on the extreme and both of them got verses to point to so this is not uh, uh an easy answer and good people differ some say they hear the voice of god which is sort of scary to me but still some say god other people on the other end say god never reveals anything outside the scripture but i wouldn't go that far now stay with me for a second i definitely believe the scripture is our bottom line But when our reformers, remember the phrase sola scriptura, scriptura, do I remember the phrase? Sola scriptura, scripture alone. The idea of scripture alone is not that only the scripture is our source of truth, but that the scripture is our ultimate source of truth. In other words, the buck stops with the Bible. We get truth from what we see. I mean, we see truth in God's wonderful creation. Science shows us truth that the Bible doesn't talk about. But it is still God speaking to us, in a sense, of revealing to us um, from his creation. Creation is revelation. We know that from Psalm 19, uh, Romans chapter 1, very clear. But it is only enough to condemn us. That's the bad news. It tells us there is a God which is why we can go across the world to the Congo. People have never heard the gospel or, or anything, and, yet, and they're worshiping because they have this sense of the creation is greater than them, therefore we're going to worship the creation. They just need the extra special revelation of Scripture to take them the next step and say, no, there's a God who made creation. You worship the God. But anyway, as far as God speaking to us on a daily basis, Think about about this through the Scripture. God didn't do this all through the Scripture. In fact, in Samuel's day, Samuel was in the tabernacle, and he heard the voice of God and thought it was Eli. And the phrase there is, the word of God was rare in those days. It wasn't a regular thing. God would step in and speak through his people, his prophets, his priests, on occasion, even his kings, like with David as he wrote scripture. But it wasn't an everyday thing. It was was a special thing that happened. So for us, you know, if I hear a voice that says, wear the red shirt today. (laughs) Am I to take, I mean, there's no verse on that. (laughs) You know, I just say, look, if you want to wear the red shirt, wear it. But is that from God? Be skeptical. Be skeptical of voices that you hear. I heard a wonderful statement this week at a conference that I was at. The the statement is this. I love this. Don't believe everything you think. That's a helpful thing to remember. Don't believe everything you think. Think about it. Even when prophecy was in full swing in the church, the Apostle Paul says that the rest, that the people who were listening to the prophets were to listen and to judge. First John says, uh, test the spirits. You know, when, when people are teaching, be discerning. The, the listeners in Berea, the Apostle Paul was there teaching. And they were like, well, let me check the Scriptures first, Paul. Even the Bereans did this and, and God called them noble. Because why? Because sola scriptura, the Bible was the bottom line. So if if we get a thought in our minds, we filter that through scripture. If there's if it doesn't if it doesn't contradict Scripture and it's something you want to do, do it. But also do it, say, Lord, this seems to be the best way to go, but please redirect me. I am totally open to what you want me to do. By the way, God, we've heard from many, many people, so much so that I just I can't imagine that it would be all a big coincidence, that uh, many former Muslims who have become Christians have seen Jesus in dreams. And it's like, well, how does that fit with Sola Scriptura? Because, and I've yet to hear an exception, that in their dreams they are guided to the Bible, or they're guided to a Christian, it piques their interest, and a Christian shows up who tells them the Bible. And so again, it boils down to the Scripture. It's never just the vision in and of itself. So we don't want to put God in a box and say God's never going to speak to us. God doesn't ever do anything like that today. But all throughout the Scripture, those are rare, exceptional occasions, and we are never told in the Scripture to listen to the still, small voice in our head. We are always told to follow the Word. So, that's about the most creative dodge I can <laughs> I can come up with for that very difficult question. Don't believe everything you think may be the best way to end that. All right, so moving on. Oh, 12 o'clock. We're stopping. So we've got, we've got still a few more questions here. Just previews of coming attractions. We'll look at next time. Comparing contrast, justification, and sanctification, the history, purpose, and importance of baptism. Do our prayers change God's mind, God's plan? Who are the good kings of Judah? Who are the prophets of the Old Testament? People throughout the world did not know God, yet they sacrificed to God. Why do they do this? And tell me about the trip that the captives took from Judah to Babylon and include maps. Yeah, I really thought we could squeeze all that in this morning. Oh, well, that's all right. So we'll have a part two. And because there'll be a part two, if there's something that comes to your mind over the next couple of weeks while I'm out, feel free to email me and we'll throw that on the back of the wagon and continue. All right. Well, let's pray. Father, your word is not just an answer book. It's not there just for us to find answers. It's there to reveal truth, even for the questions we aren't asking. Renew our devotion to sola scriptura. Renew our devotion, Lord, and our commitment to the Word. It is so much easier, Father, to be a mystic than it is to be biblically literate. Give us a passion on a daily basis to be in the Scriptures Give us the humility to allow those scriptures to penetrate our heart and mind, to guide our thinking, to redirect our opinions, and to lead us in the path that you want us to walk. Thank you that we can trust you to guide us, just as we've seen you do, uh, for example, in the book of Ruth. Simple, ordinary people seeking you, and you guided their lives. Thank you for doing that for us as well. Thanks for these wonderful questions. Thank you for uh, the the truth that your word gives us and gives us some help that we aren't groping in the dark, but we have a sure hope and an anchor for the soul in the word of God that ultimately points to our Savior Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Live the Bible. So, did any of your questions about the Bible get answered today? There's so much that we're never going to understand this side of heaven, but I hope that you were encouraged through what the Scripture does reveal. In fact, we had so many questions that we're going to do a second part of this Q&A series next time, and I hope you'll join me then for Live the Bible. And I'd also like to say, if this podcast has encouraged you, I'm asking you to help me keep it going. You can now give a tax-deductible gift to help share the Live the Bible podcast with literally thousands of people each week. To give a one-time or monthly donation, just go to LiveTheBiblePodcast.com and click on Donate. That's com and click on Donate. Thanks so much, and God bless. My friend, I hope you will read the Bible in 2024, and I'd love for us to read it together, seeing the places where it all happened. Check it out now at readingthebiblelands.com.